But first, let's start talking about the uh, the Vancouver Aquarium and what a major deal uh, announced yesterday. The aquarium sold to an American company here, uh, Harshand, Hershand Enterprises. This is a company that owns a couple of aquariums in the United States. They own the Harlem Globetrotters. They own Dolly World, which is a Dolly Parton theme park in America. Now they own the Vancouver Aquarium. And good news, bad news, I guess. The good news is that the aquarium appeared to be teetering on the edge of bankruptcy here. Officials saying yesterday this deal will save the aquarium and allow it to continue into the future. Some people, though, worried. Could this change the way the aquarium operates in Vancouver when it's owned by a for-profit American company. Now, have a listen to this. We'll play a few clips here for you. I'm looking forward to your calls on this one in the open line. This is Eric Rose. He's the vice president of Hershend Enterprises, the new owner of the Vancouver Aquarium. And here's what he had to say yesterday. We started out in the 1960s as a small family-owned caves attraction in the Ozark Mountains of Branson, Missouri. And today, this little cave attraction has now grown into a family of brands that collectively entertain more than 14 million guests annually. Okay, Eric Rose there, the vice president of Hershend Enterprises. Meanwhile, Lassie Gustafson, who is the CEO of OceanWise, which was the nonprofit that had owned the aquarium, says this is a good deal. This is a great announcement for the aquarium because the Vancouver Aquarium was in danger of going under. Here he is. Around January, we knew that if we can't close the deal, if we can't find a solution this spring, our next step will have to be closing down the aquarium. Okay, that's the CEO of the of uh, OceanWise there. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jim Fassett. He is the Executive Director of Canada's Accredited Zoos and Aquariums, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Jim, thanks a lot for coming on again. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Jim, could you just remind the listeners what you guys do there at Canada's Accredited Zoos and Aquariums? Yeah, we do two things. The uh, first thing that we do, and most importantly thing that we do, is we accredit zoos and aquariums and wildlife parks across Canada to a standard uh, of animal care and overall operations. And the second thing we do is we, we actively uh, represent uh, the community uh, to regulators, to governments across Canada as the voice of accredited um, facilities across Canada. And we have 28 of them uh, now, and I'm happy to say that we will continue to have the Vancouver Aquarium going forward. Okay, Jim, what do you think about this deal that was announced yesterday? You know, I think it's a it's a great uh, great deal, uh, not just for British Columbia, but I also think for the broader community in Canada. The Vancouver Aquarium is an iconic aquarium, not just in Canada but around the world. And the, the news release, I really think, goes to the heart of what's really important. That are two things: number one, the work of the aquarium under Mr. Wright's direction, who's an exceptional individual, has been around a very long time, and he's on our board of directors, and I have nothing but phenomenal things to say about Mr. Wright. We'll continue their work uh, in the maintaining of, of species going forward, and then you also have OceanWise, and their exemplary record uh, and what they do will also be able to continue. So it's a win-win all the way around. I, I don't think people should be afraid of the governance structure. There's an obvious commitment to the long-term viability of the aquarium here in Canada and more specifically in Vancouver. So uh, the, the sector of the industry, I think, is very welcoming of this news. 
Okay, what do you think, what do you know about this company here, this American company that's taking over the Vancouver Aquarium? Because there have been some concerns raised, not only about a, a for-profit American company here taking over, but uh, they appear to be, most of their interest seems to be in like theme parks or entertainment, like they own the Harlem Globetrotters. This is an institution that's beloved in the city of Vancouver that have been locally owned by a non-profit. Now suddenly you got a for-profit American company that... Uh, specializes in theme parks taking over like what can you say to the to the listeners jim who may be concerned about that i think if you look at the casa membership we have a number of facilities uh, that are privately held including aquariums if you look at the uh, ripley's aquarium in downtown toronto it's it's privately held we have other uh, facilities zoos in the province of quebec that are privately held in animal welfare uh never ever is inhibited or forgotten about whatsoever I think in this particular uh, company, if you look at their website, you'll see that there are two other aquariums that they maintain in the U.S. So, you know, as go- going forward, um, as an accredited facility, uh, the Vancouver Aquarium will continue to adhere to uh, CASA standards uh, in terms of operation and animal welfare. So there, I don't believe there's any, any concern there whatsoever. Okay, speaking of Jim Fassett, he's the Executive Director of Canada's Accredited Zoos and Aquariums with the big announcement yesterday on the sale of the Vancouver Aquarium. Okay, Jim, there's already been some concerns raised about this deal. Let me play this here for you. This is Peter Fricker from the Vancouver Humane Society and his comments yesterday. And that makes us very concerned that uh, animal welfare might not be a a priority with them because their focus is with uh, amusement and entertainment. And our view is that animals don't exist for our amusement and entertainment. Okay, so he's saying he's concerned about the welfare of the animals at the aquarium. What can you say to the What can you say to the people of Vancouver about that? Uh, I just repeat what I said moments ago, and that is, uh, under the direction of, of Mr. Clint Wright, who has been involved in, in animal welfare in the oceanic world and the aquarium world for a very, very long time. They have uh, an exceptional leader there. He's been there for he's been with the aquarium for many, 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 many years. Uh, Mr. Mr. Wright is on our accreditation commission. Uh, we again, we have we have no worries uh, about this going forward whatsoever. I don't think that a for-profit entity should be of any concern to anyone. Animal welfare is first and foremost, not only on the front mind of of uh, leaders like Mr. Wright, but also the people in general across Canada who work with these animals every single day. There is no one that cares for the animals that are in. Human, in the care of humans than these people who work with them every single day. And I don't think that's going to be an issue whatsoever going forward. What kind of oversight is there when it comes to the welfare of the animals there at Vancouver Aquarium? Like you mentioned that the Vancouver Aquarium had been subject to operational standards and animal care standards, yeah. and that will yeah. continue to be in place with the new owner, I, correct? I, absolutely, it will continue to be in place. Our our CASA accreditation standards, we, we re-accredit or, peop, or facilities have to apply for re-accreditation every five years, number one. Number two, they do an annual attestation with us uh, that they're accredited, they're, they're adhering to the standards. There are, uh, we have a process by which uh, complaints are received and, and I receive those and we fully investigate those at every single opportunity that we, that we where we need to. And Again, to reiterate, the people who, who work with these animals, uh, they are exceptional individuals. And during this pandemic, right across Canada, a number of the, the people who work with the animals uh, have said and have committed to 
making sure that the integrity and the health of these animals is maintained. And some have even said early on in the pandemic last year, I know that they were volunteering to, to basically stay on site to ensure that the welfare of the animals was not um, detracted yeah. from, was not negatively impacted at all. Okay, last question for you. Speaking of the pandemic, what has been the pandemic? We're now into year two of this on the zoos and aquariums across the country. Have any of them gone out of business? Yes. Uh, early on in the pandemic, we lost uh, a smaller facility in St. John, New Brunswick, called Cherrybrook Zoo. Um, they are now closed down. They're in the last stages of rehoming the last uh, two or three animals that they have. We have a number of facilities in the province of Ontario, especially in the Toronto area, like the Toronto Zoo, like Ripley's, who essentially have been closed since the month of November. Um, you know, with the federal budget coming next Monday, we're going to be looking for the extension of existing uh, federal programs, including the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, which has been a huge reason why pretty much all our eligible facilities are able that are eligible facilities that are eligible. Excuse me have been able to maintain, uh, stay in business for this time because a number of them, especially here in Eastern Canada, have been shut for a very, very long time. Jim, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for the opportunity again, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about a controversial social housing process being proposed now for the city of Vancouver. The city wants to make it easier to build badly needed social housing. Could you see social housing projects six stories high approved with no public hearings? Let's discuss now with my guest. Larry Benj is the co-chair of the Coalition of Vancouver Neighborhoods. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Larry, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you. Okay, Larry, could you explain to the listeners briefly how this how this system is uh, going to work and what your concerns are? Um, well, first of all, this is a, uh, a zoning change that staff has put forward, um, and uh, this sounds like an old mantra of ours, but it is. Uh, there's been no public consultation on this, um, and it's going to affect all the RM3 and RM4 Zoning areas across the city, which are in various spots in Kitsilano, uh, along Burrard, uh, in uh, the Grandview Woodlands area, and Marpole. So it's in various places across the city. Right. Um, our, our objection to this proposal is that um, this um, is going to put a lot of pressure on the existing affordable rental uh, buildings in this in these areas which are mostly three and four story and there are a lot of uh, long-term tenants in these buildings uh, which have quite reasonable rents based on the fact that they've been there for a long time and uh, this is going to put a lot of pressure uh, on the owners of these properties to redevelop uh, into newer housing Right. And uh, one of the problems is the city's definition of social housing, which is a very uh, uh, one that isn't followed in just about any other city in the province, and that is if you have 30% of the units in a building uh, as social housing at uh, uh, shelter rates or uh, affordable rates uh, as a city definitions. Uh, run, uh, then the entire building is considered social housing. And we're not against social housing, but we yeah. would like to see buildings of 100% true social housing at shelter rates. 
but and the city could have proposed that as part of this change but they didn't what what about the public hearing process here larry is this is it possible that you could see these type of projects these social housing projects fast tracked and approved uh without a public hearing involved well that and that uh depends entirely on uh the type of building and stuff i mean you're you're leaving it wide open if you um if you don't have public hearings, there is no basis for challenging any of these spot rezonings. And given the history of the city in the last 10 to 15 years, um, they uh, and staff's uh, history, not just council, but staff as well, uh, they've approved things that are vastly oversized, in, in our opinion, and uh, have detrimental effects on neighborhoods, and particularly on older affordable uh, housing. They should be giving incentives to these uh, older apartment blocks and things where there is truly affordable rental accommodation uh, to help them redevelop these units into uh, uh, a better uh, situation. Would you say that, especially when it comes to an overheight building of like six stories, that at the very least, just based on the fundamental principles of democracy uh as, especially local democracy that you should have a, a public hearing uh in a, in a de- for a development like that would you agree well if you had proper neighborhood-based planning processes where uh the city would be uh, co-creating changes to zoning bylaws with uh the citizenry uh, then perhaps there could be opportunities for areas where you could have changes to bylaws without public hearings. But that would follow a, a fairly rigorous public engagement process, which the city does not engage in at the current time. Their processes are very limited in terms of uh, the effectiveness of their current public engagement processes. They're very poor. And uh, we could see uh, ways of streamlining the processes if, if that was uh, something that the city was interested in, but they don't seem to be at the present time. Have you seen, this last question for you, have you seen some projects going forward here with, without a lot of public input that you think that are, are inappropriate projects in, in certain neighborhoods? Well, that's a very wide open question. Well, I mean, like in, Kitsil- <laughs> like in, Kits- in Kitsilano, for example. There are some which uh, which um, go ahead with uh, what were you saying without public hearings. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There aren't too many uh, because uh, if you follow the current zoning bylaws, um, I don't think uh, you know neighborhoods don't have a lot of problems with uh, people who follow the current zoning bylaws. But if you're exceeding the zoning bylaws and you get into spot rezonings, well, then you kick into public hearings at the current at the current procedure level. Okay. Thank you for coming on today. All righty. Thank you. All right. Larry Benj there, co-chair of the Coalition of Vancouver Neighborhoods. Let's check in with Brent Totter and now former city planner for the city of Vancouver. Brent, thanks a lot for coming on again. My pleasure. Brent, do you think we, uh, what do you think about what the city's doing here? Do you think the social housing proje- projects like this need to be fast tracked? And, and what about the public hearings here? Do you think they should go forward? Well, I have to say, even just listening to that last interview, it, it seems always the case there's just a ton of misinformation and misunderstanding. And I think some of that misunderstanding might be accidental and some of it might be deliberate. 
And I don't think actually the media has helped here because the media has really been focusing on this term public hearing. Oh, my God, we're waiving the public hearings. What this is, is every zoning bylaw has a list of permitted uses. Those are things that are allowed in the zoning. And right now in the RM zones, six-story social housing projects, six-story buildings at all, are not allowed in the zoning. So every six-story project... For, for social housing, which is really the most modest form of social housing. It's a small social housing project based on the actual needs of the operators. Every one of those projects has to go through a rezoning, and the rezoning takes years. And it's not a lot more than just the public hearing. It takes a huge amount of money, years of work, and a, often a big, long, contentious public hearing. So this isn't about waiving the public hearing. What this is about is adding six-story um, and which can be wood frame buildings, uh, often the case, six-story social housing projects to the list of permitted uses. So you don't need a rezoning. Yes, you don't need a public hearing. You also don't need to go through the rezoning process at all. Well, I think, though, of time. yeah, but for someone who's living in a neighborhood and then they find out that a six-story social housing project is potentially going in next door to them or across the street for them a lot of, from them i think a lot of people would have some legitimate concerns and it just seems to me just basic fundamental democracy uh, that they should have an opportunity to have their voice heard at a public hearing so why why well, would the Go ahead. There, are, there are literally thousands of applications in the city of Vancouver every year that don't require a public hearing. And the decision makers, council, has decided over years what's allowed in the zoning, what's not allowed in the zoning. The things that aren't allowed in the zoning require a zone change and a public hearing. So it's not about fundamental democracy because the democratically elected representatives at council have decided over years what requires a rezoning and what doesn't. And uh, planning is not direct democracy. Not every, no, no decisions have referendums, for example. Everything, it's called indirect democracy because it's decisions made by the people that are elected. So it is democracy, but it's all of planning. Almost all of planning is indirect democracy. And this is too. So there's nothing weird. There's nothing unusual about this. It's actually pretty mundane. This is a situation where most of council ran on a platform of getting, addressing affordability, addressing homelessness and building more uh, uh, social housing. But every single time social housing projects are proposed, not just the public hearing, it literally takes years and hundreds of thousands of dollars, which means that often they need other revenue sources or more money from the government, etc., just to get through that well, rezoning process. Well, Brent, it may be mundane to you, but for someone who lives in that neighborhood, when they find out that an overheight building and a social housing building could be going up next door to them or across the street from them that is not mundane they want well, they want to have to the a say in just use listen to the language you just use overheight the zoning actually determines what is allowed and not allowed and there's still going to be a process probably a development permit board hearing to talk about the details of the design of the building and, and that's where all the architectural details. But what council would be doing if they approve this rezoning to allow these buildings, these types of buildings in the zone, is saying, we're not going to an- ask the question every time, do we want a six-story building? We're saying in these zones, which are not the whole city, but yeah. just the zones that already allow greater intensity of use, in these zones, we're predetermining that we're okay with the concept of six-story buildings 
and we're going to let the the development permit. Well, the pre the predetermining the predetermining I think is is the problem here. So let's say you live in a neighborhood and and you don't like the idea of a six story social housing project going in next door to you. Why would you not give them the opportunity to have their voice heard at a public hearing? Well, right now, you keep saying things like it's unusual. Right now, there might be somebody in that neighborhood who doesn't like the idea of a four-story building. But the zoning right now allows a four-story building in the zoning. So the zoning is what determines what's predetermined. So people are getting their opportunity for input right now through this public hearing. That's where the democracy, the, the public input is playing out. And that's the well, case. Don't you find that kind of ironic that we're going to have a public hearing about whether to not have public hearings in the future on a project not, like this? That's not accurate. We're Come not on. having a public hearing about whether to have public hearings. We're having a public hearing uh, to determine whether or not these things should be allowed in the zoning and need a zoning application at all and have right. to spend three to four years of process, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of application, plus a big public hearing, to get a six-story social housing project built. That's what's, it's not about just waiving the public hearing. That's just factually incorrect. This yeah, is but about but the, public he- no, the public hearing would, would be required under the current system, but it would not be required under the system you're proposing. Because you correct? don't need a rezoning. That what's changing That's what I'm talking is you about. won't need a rezoning. Yeah, exactly. You, but you keep focusing on the public hearing. Well, because well, this is what people want to have. Brent, people want to have a say what's going on in their own neighborhood. If there's a six-story social housing project going in across the street from you, I want to have a say about it. Well, maybe you want to have a say on the four-story building across the street from you, too. And there is a say through the development permit process. This is about council, the democratically elected representatives of the city, deciding what kinds of things they need to see as council versus the kinds of things that Does Kitsilano, deal with through the technical review process. Let's take Kitsilano as an example, okay? Like in Kitsilano right now, can you put a six-story building into Kits right now? We're not without a rezoning, and that's the point. So you spend, right. you've spent three to four years. So a, a social housing provider in the context of a public health and uh, a homelessness crisis spends three to four years, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, and often multiple nights of a public hearing eventually. But they've already spent years working on it because it requires a rezoning long before the public hearing. And all of that cost is borne by all of us uh, in the form of BC housing money, that's our tax money, and it actually reduces the amount of social housing they can provide because they often need other funding sources like market rental housing. So the current system doesn't work. It's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly time-consuming for all of us. It's often frustrating because after spending nights and nights at the public hearing, council says, yes, we're going to, we we need this social housing. So the system clearly right now is is broken. And we have to remember, this is a minor change in the context of the actual kind of social housing that the social housing providers say they need. They need much bigger than six stories. Thank, but thank that's you. not what's being proposed. We're out of time, but thank you for your time today. Thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick programming note for you now. Coming up at the top of this hour, it's Friday. we got to have a little bit of fun, right? So we got our movie guy, Steve Stebbing, coming up. And think about this one now. What is your favorite bad movie? Like a movie that was slammed by the film critics 
Maybe it got two thumbs down from Siskel and Ebert, but you thought it was great. Now, I've got a couple of movies on my list that I'll share with you. These are movies that I thought were fantastic. I love them, but the critics hated these movies. So stand by for that. That's at the top of this hour. And think about it for me. Think about what would be on your list. Maybe it's your favorite hidden gem movie or an underappreciated movie. Think about that and get set to call me at the top of the hour. Now, speaking of getting slammed, Aaron O'Toole, the federal conservative leader, and his carbon pricing plan. Some people think it's great, others not so much. We're going to talk about that now. First, have a listen to the conservative leader here on how his carbon pricing system will work. Canada's conservatives will scrap the federal carbon tax backstop and work with the provinces to implement an innovative and national personal low carbon savings account. This will maintain a consumer price on carbon, but without one penny going to the government okay don't call it a carbon tax because the money's not going to the government if the conservatives win the next election and aaron o'toole is prime minister he'll get rid of justin trudeau's carbon tax he'll bring in this carbon pricing system the money would go into a savings account for you instead all right let's discuss now with my guest aaron woodrick federal director canadian taxpayers federation please welcome him back hey aaron how you doing mike I'm doing great. So you don't like this idea, right? <laughs> Suffice to say, we do not like it. I mean, okay. it's no secret we are not fans of carbon taxes generally, and we've opposed Trudeau's tax, but this is just a strange policy, Mike, to be blunt. Um, he says it's not a tax. They've spent the past few years hammering Justin Trudeau for his tax. Um, they call it a savings account. Really what it is, Mike, is almost like a loyalty program. I mean, he's saying when you pay this tax, it goes into a special account, and you can't spend it on anything you want. You can only spend it on a government-approved list of green stuff. So, you know, we're thinking e-bikes and, I don't know, fertilizer and solar panels, and who knows what will be on that list. But it is a strange idea, and uh, it seems like, you know, he is really hanging his hat on the idea that government is not getting its hands on the money. But in the process... There's going to have to be this huge bureaucracy, you know, to, to run this program, to decide what's on this list of things you can use your points for. I mean, it's really just inviting a whole bunch of other spending that, uh, that you don't need with, uh, ironically, with Justin Trudeau's rebate. Okay, so you think it is a tax. Like he's saying, this is not a carbon tax. It's a, saving, it's a carbon savings account. But, you know, bottom line is you still you think it is a tax, right? Well, yeah. Look, you, are you paying it at, at the pump? The answer is yes. yes. I mean, they're saying, well, you get it back in the form of these, uh, call them O'Toole points. But th- that's uh-huh. not really what defines a tax. Like, to, to us, what defines a tax is, are you being deprived of money that you can't spend on something you want to? Yes? Then that's a tax. Um, and what the money is spent on, you know, is, is kind of irrelevant after that. Okay, but this guy, I don't know, he's between a rock and the proverbial hard place here on this, because in the last... The election, the conservatives got keel hauled for not having a serious climate change plan or a policy. Now he is saying, no, no, look, we're on board with fighting climate change. We do want to meet our carbon reduction targets. And here's the way we're going to do it. Pricing carbon is the way to suppress demand for these fossil fuels that are causing the problems. And in this way, the money doesn't go to the government it effectively stays in your pocket and yeah i mean they're telling you what you can spend it on but it's stuff that's going to be good for the environment like i'm just trying to figure out what would be a better way to do it 
mean, I'd say two things first. It's ironically, they're drawing attention to the fact that the Trudeau plan for the provinces in which it applies, they just give you a rebate. So the choice is really between are you just going to get a rebate or are you going to get these points, you know, this cash that can only be spent on the government approved list? I think most people would probably rather have the cash. The other is, it, look, it's, it's more a question of integrity for Mr. O'Toole. He explicitly said he wasn't going to do this. In fact, he signed a pledge to the CTF saying he would not do this. So, you know, it's difficult to take the man at his word now when he's well, already broken a, a pretty explicit promise um, that, he, that he made in order to win the party leadership. Well, he, he signed a pledge to say he would not bring in a carbon tax, right? And he's saying this is not a tax. The money's not going to the government. Well, uh, it is still coming out of people's pockets, right? Yeah, and look, right. I, I do, I respect the, the, they were clearly trying to be, I'll give him points for creativity, okay? Because he was trying to find a way, because our concern with the, with the Trudeau rebates is, sure, they rebate them for now, but it's going to get awfully tempting over the years, right? If they're running big deficits, they're going to say there's a big pot of money there. Maybe we should just keep that, as you've seen in BC, right? You had a revenue neutral uh, t- carbon taxes, and then when the New Democrats came into power, they, they, it's no longer revenue neutral. So there was a risk there, and I appreciate they were trying to come up with a solution to that. But, boy, this, it seems like they came up with the most uh, convoluted, complicated solution that, that was on offer. Okay, let's have another listen to more of the Conservative leader here, Aaron, and get your take. Here is Aaron O'Toole uh, speaking about his low-carbon savings account. Have a listen. Every time Canadians buy hydrocarbon-based fuel, they will pay into their low-carbon savings account that they will manage and use towards purchases that will help them lower their carbon footprint, improve the efficiency of their home, and live a greener life. That could mean applying the savings account towards buying a transit pass or putting the money towards a new efficient furnace or new windows. It could even contribute towards the purchase of a hybrid or electric vehicle for the family. Okay, so I guess the way he's trying to sell this is, look, the money is not going to the government. It's going to stay in your own pocket and you will have, you'll have some latitude in what you can spend the money on as long as it's like a, a, a green a green product. So you're saying that you actually prefer the Trudeau carbon tax with rebates instead? Well, I think the choice is between just giving people money and trusting them to spend it on what they want to versus saying, well, no, you're going to have to segregate this money in this special pot and you can only buy stuff off the government approved list. No, it's, and, and frankly, it's hard to see how a conservative party is making that argument that we can't trust people to spend the money. You know, you need to leave it to us to decide uh, what you can spend it on. Do you think this could divide conservatives? I mean, what are you hearing from kind of the grassroots on this? Because what I'm looking for is any kind of fracture or division here in the conservative ranks over this policy. What are you hearing? Yeah, it's suffice to hear some people are not happy about this. Um, look, I, I know it's party politics and it's all about uh, being team players and stuff like that. But it's, uh, it, you know, that is a question that Mr. O'Toole is going to have to address. I, it's, it's, I have no, uh, no horse in that race. But from a, just from purely from a public statement standpoint, you know, he'd been very clear for years that he was going to get rid of Trudeau's carbon tax. He made no mention of this sort of thing. And so I think that's something he's ultimately going to have to be accountable for. Okay. What do you think government should do to combat climate change? Because the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, you guys are not climate change deniers. Right? That's true. We believe right. climate change is real. Absolutely. It's, it's real um, and it's, it's caused by human activity. It's caused by the combustion of yep. fossil fuels, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. So what do you think government should do about it? 
Yeah, I think that we need to take an approach that recognizes what Canada can do is limited. And that, you know, the the federal conservatives last time around had touched on some of this. Really what matters in fighting climate change is reduction of global emissions, right? And so if Canada's emissions don't drop by much, but we can produce things or export things that reduce the total emissions globally by, for example, producing something here at much less lower emissions than in another country, I think that's something that we need to incorporate into our strategy because it doesn't matter which country does the emissions. All that matters is that the total emissions are lower. So I think the focus solely on our emissions is, is probably the biggest mistake of the, the current approach. So we, should, so should, we should uh, do more fracking. We should frack more natural gas and sell liquefied natural gas to China so they don't have to burn as much coal. Well, that's right. an example. And people say, yeah. well, fracking is bad. But if, yeah. if the fracking here is done at lower emissions than somewhere else, and it will be done somewhere else, make no mistake, if we don't do it, yeah. that is a net positive, And I think that's something that needs but, to be considered. Right. But that's, but that's not going to help us meet our Paris Accord climate change targets, though, right? Or emission targets. Because that doesn't well, count. It, it, that it doesn't, and that's the yeah. that's the, the difficulty we have with Paris in particular is that it focuses again solely on the the national production. When really, you know, it, it, it would actually be better for the planet if Canada's went up, but say China's went down dramatically. That is a huge net gain, and oh, yeah. and yet it would be viewed as bad policy if you're looking just through the national lens. Right, right, okay, all right. We're following it closely, Aaron. Thanks for coming on with your take on it. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks a lot, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the shows. Let's have some Friday fun now. There's so much bad news out there. Come on, we got to have a couple of laughs, right? Now, here's the deal. What is your favorite bad movie? Maybe it's a movie that totally bombed at the box office. It laid an egg with moviegoers, lost a ton of money. It was a disaster for the studio. But you love it anyway. Or maybe it's a movie that got trashed by the critics. Two thumbs down. But you thought it was great. I think everybody's got a few movies like that on their list. I know I've got a couple to share with you as well. All right, let's get into this now with our guest, our movie guy, Steve Stebbing. He's a movie connoisseur and critic, The Steve-Old Dead on Twitter, stevestebbing.ca. Hey, Steve. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Okay, this is it's always fun to have you on and talk about stuff like this and I know that uh you know you've got some favorite movies that maybe were a bomb at the box office but you thought were great. So why don't we start with your first pick, Steve? What where do you want to go here? Uh let's go more recent like 2000s era with Danny DeVito's Death to Smoochie. Death to Smoochie. Okay, let's have a little listen to the trailer, Steve. Here it is. They're kicking out of the corporate penthouse. I'm homeless. I can assure you this network cannot survive another Rainbow Randolph. Don't touch me. Let it stop. Salmonella. Sir, it is my personal mission to find a satisfactory replacement. Okay, there's some big stars in this movie, Danny DeVito, Robin Williams, but it was a bomb though, right? Yeah, it was a bomb, and it was uh, much maligned by the critics as well. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I mean, Danny DeVito directed this one. Uh, it came from the writer of Cabin Boy, another maligned movie from the mid-'90s. And it's, I mean, it, it's one of Robin Williams, in my opinion, one of his best performances as he plays like a, a fired uh, uh, kids uh, performer that basically puts the new guy, a big purple rhino, in the crosshairs uh, to, to murder him to kind of uh, give himself some satisfaction. Okay, this would be a black comedy, I imagine. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And it, yeah, it, it's, it's brilliant. 
it didn't last long in theaters. I remember seeing it when it came out on video, and I was like, why didn't people like this? <laughs> okay, Death to Smoochie is Steve's pick. Okay, Steve, I got one for here for right. you, and this is one that I remember when I saw the trailer, I thought the trailer looked great. Like, I'm a sucker for big-budget special effects action movies, and I thought this looked great. But when the reviews came out for it, the the reviewers, the critics, absolutely hated this movie, but it was a big hit. I still love it. I would still watch it if it, if it comes on TV. And it's the, the original 1999 film, The Mummy. Here's a trailer. You have unleashed a creature that we have feared for more than 3,000 years. Is the bringer of death. He will never stop. Okay, released in 1999, and the critics didn't like it at all, Steve. I know Universal Studios, they were desperate for a big hit and i guess it was a hit a hit movie but man the critics didn't like it but i thought it was great honestly i i thought this the series was great until it fell apart with uh curse the dragon emperor the third one with uh, jet lee um but i i will say it right here i think brendan fraser is one of the best action hero adventure movie leading men ever and the fact that uh the, the, the tragicness that happened to him in his career kind yeah. of tanked him because, uh, honestly, and from all that I hear and everything, he's also like an incredible dude as well. So uh, I always will have a soft spot in my heart for The Mummy. I agree with you. I loved it. Brendan Fraser I thought was great. Rick O'Connell. How do you not love Rick O'Connell? He was Absolutely. like the, the Indiana Jones for that generation. And he had wonderful chemistry, I thought, with Rachel Weiss on the, as the librarian and the other co-star there. So I love it. The critics hated it. I loved it. All right, Steve, give me another one here. Uh, okay, we're going to go back to 1990 for a movie probably nobody knows about. Uh, and it's got Bill Murray, uh, Randy Quaid, and Gina Davis. It's a bank robber movie, and it's called Quick Change. Quick Change. Okay, here's a, here's a listen to the trailer. Let's not mess with me today. What the hell kind of clown are you? To crying on the inside kind of guess. Okay, Steve, another box office bomb that you love. I absolutely love this one, and Bill Murray stepped up and co-directed this movie. It was very near and dear to his heart. Uh, it's such a good Randy Quaid uh, performance. And I also have to mention that the, the lead uh, uh, of the opposition, the cops that are trying to take them down, is the wonderful Jason Robards, who hasn't turned in a bad performance in his entire storied career. Uh, I mean, this is just everything that works uh, and that you just didn't work for audiences and critics at the time, I guess. But it's now on Blu-ray as of two weeks from now, so you can all check it out. Okay, another lovable bomb there from Steve. All right, here's another one for me, Steve, and then we're going to take some calls and see what the listeners think and see what their picks are. But this one stars one of my favorite actors for sure, Nicolas Cage. I just love Nicolas Cage. And all, just about everything he's done, even the terrible movies that he's done, whatever. I just love watching Nicolas Cage. He's one of my favorites for sure. Maybe you know where I'm going here, Steve, but it's 2004 National Treasure. Is another one that was savaged by the critics. I just loved it. National Treasure. Here's the trailer. Benjamin Franklin Gates, you are undertaking the duty of the family Gates to find the most spectacular treasure in history. It grew throughout the ages and moved across continents until it was hidden by America's founding fathers. Okay, this is another one with the uh, the secret map on the back of the Declaration <laughs> of Independence. And 
the absolutely improbable plot, but yes. man, I just I just loved it. It spawned some sequels and another yeah. one that the critics didn't like, but man, I just loved it. Yeah, and I mean, this one was uh, Nicolas Cage and John Turtletop joining forces because they would again for the sequel and for The Sorcerer's Apprentice, all for Disney. Uh, wow. And yeah, it's ridiculous. It's Indiana Jones, but to a ridiculous degree. And the thing that makes me laugh most about this movie is playing father and son. Nicolas Cage and John Voight have inde- identical <laughs> hair pieces. Identical. <laughs> All right, welcome back. Steve Stebbing is my guest. And, oh, man, we got a ton of calls here for people with their uh, unappreciated movies. Let's go to Lawrence and Burnaby. Hi, Lawrence. How are you doing today? I'm good. Go ahead. Uh, my all-time favorite, and I'm not a horror kind of guy, but uh, it was Tremors. Oh, yeah. Uh, they came <laughs> out. I believe they had Kevin Bacon in it. I got a, a, like a promo preview pass, and Buddy and I, we went in there. And we're watching it. It's kind of kind of a weird beginning, and yeah. then about maybe twenty minutes into the movie, half hour in the movie, I realized what I was watching. It wasn't a horror. It was a. It seemed to me, in my eyes, a campy takeoff of the horror movies from the early sixties and that. Mm-hmm. So my, I start laughing, and my buddy understands what's happening, and we're laughing. Everybody else is being so serious. But it's giant, and I mean giant earthworm terrorizing this little I know Texas or, or Arizona town. Is it Kevin Bacon, I believe? Is it? Oh, yeah, that's right. Kevin Bacon. Thank you, Lawrence, for that one. That's one of those ones, uh, Steve, that Tremors I'd heard about but hadn't watched it, and I finally got around to watching it. I loved it, too. What do you think? It's on 4K now, and it's just as glorious as ever. And yeah. Val and Earl, uh, which is Kevin Bacon and uh, Fred Ward's characters, yes. that's friendship goals right there. Like, they are the best buddies forever. And it has Egg Shen from Big Trouble in Little China in it, Victor Wong. So you can't go wrong with that movie. Yeah, that's a great pick. Let's go to Doug in Cloverdale. Hi, Doug. Hey, yeah. Tomatoes gave the 15%. It was locally un- Okay, Doug, you're you're breaking up real bad. I'm going to get Tim to see if he can get a better connection for you because I don't want to. We'll see if we can get you back on here. Scott in Maple Ridge. Hey, Scott, go ahead. Hey, 1980s, late 80s, I think. Repo Man, Harry Dean Stanton, the late great Harry Dean Stanton and Emilio Estevez when he used to act and not direct. Such a weird movie, compelling, hard to stop watching because it's so strange. Love that show. Okay, kind of a uh, thank you for that. It's kind of a bit of a cult classic, would you say, Steve? Absolutely. It's actually uh, really celebrated in the cinephile universe because it is actually part of the Criterion Collection now, which is like the definitive collection of great movies. Uh, and it's Alex Cox uh, with a punk rock movie. Interesting to note that Alex Cox was blacklisted, basically, from Hollywood about a decade later. Oh, wow. Okay, Garth on the line and Steve Stin. Hi, Garth. Okay, I got one of... Uh, Gene Wilder, Quacks oh, yeah. Fortune, has a cousin in the Bronx. And then um, uh, Waterworld oh, and yeah. The Postman. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone laughs at me about those ones. They think I'm an idiot. Okay, I, you know what? I'm totally with you on Waterworld. Now, that's another one I was almost going to put on my list for my picks here, Steve, because that's one when I finally got around to watching Waterworld, it had been so thoroughly trashed by every critic i thought oh man this is going to be terrible why am i even watching it and i liked it no it's a it's a really great movie i remember seeing it in theaters at the time i was quite young 
but I was blown away by the movie. And people love to say that that was a box office bomb. It made its money back, plus it made a Universal Parks theme ride that's been making money ever since <laughs> the mid-'90s. So how is it a box office bomb again? But the critics didn't like it, though, right? Yeah, well, yeah. you know. Yeah, it, 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 timing. Timing is everything. Sometimes the critics are wrong, i got to say. Let's go to Randy and Ladner. Hey, Randy. Hi. Hi. Uh, two that I like are the Wild Wild West and the Lone Ranger. <laughs> okay, which Lone Ranger? Which version? Uh, of the one? most recent one with, yeah. with Johnny Depp. Oh, Johnny Depp. Okay, Steve, what do you think? That movie takes massive chances, and I really dug everything that it took. My only issue with the movie is I think it could have used a bit of trimming uh because it is just over two hours long and it uh it, it just it, it feels a little egregious at, at points but i mean the cross-dressing villain uh the cannibal villain like there's so many chances that gordon Verbinski takes in that movie and i i really enjoyed it okay real good pick there thank you randy let's go to frank on the line in vancouver hey frank hey how you doing I'm good. uh two two movies uh that i think the critics were unfair to uh Gigli, and Michael J. Fox's, I think, first movie, Class of 1984. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember Class of 1984 because I think that was filmed. Was that filmed in Toronto? I think it was, Steve. I, I think so, yeah. Marco yeah. Lester did that one. They also did a sequel as well. I'll get on board uh, for, for Class of 1984 for sure, but I, I, I just can't feel the Geely. I, I, I've seen it more than once, and I've regretted it both times. <laughs> Okay, Geely, I'm just trying to remember who was who was the star in that like one. J-Lo. Yeah, oh yeah, okay. I remember yeah. that one. Okay. That was that's one I haven't seen. I don't I don't think I'm gonna see it. Marie and <laughs> Langley. Hi Marie. Hi. Hi there. This movie was an absolute bomb at the box office. I think it's hilarious and people should give it a try. It was from the eighties and it's called Ishtar. Ishtar, yeah. yeah. <laughs> With Warren yeah. Beatty and Dustin Hoffman. It's hilarious, but it was it was a disaster at the box office. Yes, it was a very famous disaster, as I recall, Steve. Yeah, that's why they called uh, Waterworld when they came out. They called it Fish Tar. Fish Tar, <laughs> right, right. Why was that one such a big flop? Like, I, I sometimes wonder why are why are some movies just destined to be like epic disasters at the box office? Oh, you know, what? I think it's just what the films that that uh, preceded both films were these massive actors and the, the, the exorbitant budget as well. Because I think I'm probably wrong on this because I'm not looking at their IMDb page, but I think this was post Tootsie for uh, Dustin Hoffman, oh, yeah. and it might have been post Reds for uh, Warren Beatty. So they were coming off high profile movies, and they're like, "Oh, they're getting these two together," and it just wasn't what people were looking for, which is never a way to gauge how good a movie is okay producer tim french diane uh, jump in here with one tim what do you got all right so i just looked it up and this one only got five percent on rotten tomatoes and so it was it just it seemed like a flop but to me i loved it it's a larry the cable guy movie called delta farce and it just <laughs> made me laugh <laughs> okay tell me tell me about that one who's in that one all right so it's larry the cable guy uh dj Quail and uh, one other guy whose name escapes me. Basically, they're all weekend warriors uh, for the army, and they get drafted to Iraq, but they actually get dropped into Mexico, but they think it's Iraq, and it's just a, a train wreck. <laughs> the okay. other guy is Bill Engvall. That's the one, yeah. Okay, where does that one rank on your list, Steve? Do you like that one? Oh, boy, no. I can't. I'm oh, okay. sorry, <laughs> It's okay. It's sorry, okay. Hey, I don't want to bury you on, on air, but I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, good one though, Steve or, or Tim. I appreciate that. Okay, Russ and Maple Ridge. Russ, hey, how are you guys doing? 
Good, Here's go ahead. One, and I thought of this one when you caught up Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Probably one of his very first movies, I would think. Him and Blondie in a movie called Videodrome. Videodrome, right. Steve, do you know that one? Yeah, that's uh, James Woods. Uh, oh, and yeah. it's a David Cronenberg movie, and David right. Cronenberg is one of our uh, Canadian gods of cinema. Yeah. And uh, maybe it didn't get celebrated at the time, but oh man, is that celebrated now? Because uh, as being a big horror guy, Cronenberg and, and like the like the top five Cronenberg films, that's definitely in there. And uh, yeah, it's brought up regularly. Yes, very influential director for sure. Let's go to Robert in South Surrey. Hi, Robert. I've got a minute here. Hello. Yeah. Um, Nicholas Cage for sure, and John Travolta in Face Off. I think that. Oh, I love it. Who's that show? Yeah, for for sure. Who directed that one, Steve? Famous John Woo. Of course, yes. Yes, John Woo. I love it. Let's squeeze in one more. Uh, Brom and Langley. Brom, you got thirty seconds. Go ahead. Yeah, man, you got to go with Fifth Element with Bruce Willis. That's an all-time classic. (laughs) Okay. So good. It covers all, all the bases for a good movie.